Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, such a joy to be here with you as uh, officially your pastor. So this is really cool, really neat. Um, just a couple, perhaps, updates um, for us. Uh, yes, some of you may have heard we did uh, put in an offer in a house, and we are in the process of going through the purchase. And so, Lord willing, we close uh, January 15th. It was already supposed to be January 8th and got pushed back a week, and understandably so, and we were happy to, uh, to do that for the people who are selling their house to us. So, Lord willing, um, who knows what weather will be like or anything else, but Lord willing, we land here somewhere January 15th, I think that's a Friday, 16th, something like that. So be praying for us um, as, we, as we prepare to move down here, and we'll try to keep you up to date as much as possible much as possible on that. Um, so we thank you for your prayers so far. I, I, I do want to say uh, very sincerely thank you for calling me to be your pastor. Uh, I don't consider myself much of an answer to solve all the problems. I want to serve you faithfully. As a matter, I shared this with uh, Pastor Matt and Pastor Kyle when I was watching. I was able to sneak in on Zoom for the for the members meeting on Sunday uh, afternoon, and um, and. Um, first of all, was was very was very uh, touched and rejoiced in the honesty and humility of of both Pastor Kyle and Steve as they spoke. But I remember just thinking in my heart, I just I want to come here and serve you well. I want to come here and serve you well, and that is my my deepest desire. And and uh, whether whether the Lord only gives us this one Sunday or there's a thousand more in the future, uh, I rejoice to be with you and am thankful to be with you uh, for for however long uh, the Lord would give us together. The next, uh, the next couple weeks, we're going to talk about Jesus uh, around this Christmas season. We're going to talk about this theme of in him was life. And today, we're going to look at maybe a, a lesser, lesser looked at passage of scripture from Matthew chapter 1. And so you can take your Bibles and turn there, Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to look at the family tree of Jesus Christ, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, when talking about family ancestry, um, most of us long, I know Ancestry.com is a big thing right now where you can, you can, I think you fill out information. There's other things where you send in, I don't know, some spit or something, and then they, they tell you who you're related to and all these things. And all of us want there to be someone great, right? We want to be related to somebody who did something, a king, somebody who owns a castle in Scotland. You know, we want to we be related to them. Um, being a pastor, I already know what it's like not to be cool at family gatherings. Uh, my brother-in-law is, uh, is, is a Marine, and he was, he was even involved um, on the raid where they, where they took out Osama bin Laden. I'll just say, people want to talk to him a lot more than they want to talk to me, you know. They know I'm a pastor, but all the cool stuff, you know, happens with the Marine, the Marine who served uh, overseas. But not many people brag about their great, 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 great grandfather being some peasant in Scotland, you know, in medieval times. It's just not something we talk about. And I don't know much about your family tree, and I don't really know much about mine, to my shame, but isn't that kind of disappointing? I know there's some German in my background. That's where the name Fisher comes from. Um, and for those wondering, I don't have any Hispanic in me. That's been asked a couple times. Though, 
quite occasionally, not occasionally, but every now and then I do, uh, someone, who, someone who is Hispanic will come and start speaking to me in Spanish, maybe at a restaurant or something like that, expecting me to respond, and I have to say, I'm sorry, I'm not Latino, and they're like, you're not Latino? I'm like, no, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> so, so that happens about once a year, so it hasn't, it hasn't happened in 2020, but it's not over yet, so we'll never know. Uh, but whatever you may or may not know about your family, I'm betting there's some skeletons in that family closet. Some things, you know, it's the, it's the family member you get asked about at the holidays, and you just, just, ah, don't, why did they ask me about that person? You know, it just brings up a sore subject. Family members who maybe did something atrocious or it's better not talked about. It's interesting, when we come to the, the genealogy of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, none of the messiness is hidden. And we're not going to take time to go through all these names, of course. We're only going to highlight a few of these here. But you would think that if Matthew really wanted to impress his Jewish audience that this Jesus was truly the king, the Messiah, he would try to make it look as good as possible. But he didn't. He didn't. As you read through these names, uh, you, you, I mean, even look at, uh, we're going to touch on this, but even in verse 6, where he talks about Jesus being a descendant of David. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. It's almost as if Matthew is trying to emphasize the fact that this wasn't a pretty family tree. You have Rahab, the prostitute. You have Tamar, who played the prostitute. You have Ruth, the outsider. And then obviously uh, insinuated this is, is Bathsheba who committed adultery with David as well after David forced her to come into his kingdom. But he doesn't hide anything. It's, it's the opposite. He highlights and emphasizes the sinful nature of these people because the fact is these were all people who are part of the generation of Adam. And the generation of Adam we learn about through Adam, that's where sin came. And death by sin. And this death and sin spread to all people, but there was another man who would come, his name is Jesus Christ, who would bring life, in whom would be life. And you and I too, we are born into Adam's generation. We're sinners, and we sin. You go back in your family tree, every stop along the way, you're going to find sin, and you're going to find sinners. But Jesus came, born of a virgin, the incarnate God, and anyone who chooses to trust in Jesus will be part of a new family, the family of God. And unfortunately, that won't erase your crazy uncle, but it'll give you a new hope, an eternal hope. When Jesus was born, the claim was that he was king, and the Jews would want to know, well, where'd this guy come from? That's why Matthew includes this genealogy. If this Jesus truly is the king, prove it. And that's what he does here, showing how Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus, was, was a descendant. He even had the right to David's throne. But as we look at these names, we see ourselves. We see our own need. We see who God is to us and who God is for us. And so this morning, I want to look at four eternal truths about God that we see in this family tree. 
We're not going to dive too much into very many of these names, but I trust that as we look at this family tree, that you would maybe see yourself, but more than just seeing yourself, you would see who God is and who Jesus is who came to save you. I want to look at the first five verses there, and um, at the sake of me mispronouncing names, uh, we're not going to read everything here, uh, but uh, verses one through five, verses one th- here's the first eternal truth that we learn from this family tree. Number one is that God's promises can sustain you. God's promises can sustain you. Here in the first five verses, we have many of the patriarchs. Uh, the, we have Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. And as a matter of fact, that's who we're going to spend our time on, though we'll address briefly some of these other ones. But it says in verse one, cha- uh, chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the gene- genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, back up further, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. And really what you see in this list of names is a mixture of worshiping faith and wavering faith. As you look through these names, this is like an Old Testament walkthrough is what this is. Kind of showing how each and everything is building up to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But think about Abraham. We're only going to look at Abraham. Abraham went from worshiping idols. We we learned that in uh, Judges 24. Maybe it was Joshua 24. Uh, we learn that Abraham goes from worshiping idols to worshiping the true God. And we see a number of evidences that the promises of God is what sustained him. As a matter of fact, as you go through all these names and you read the accounts of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and on and on and on, you, com- you, you see repeatedly the promises of God. It was as if God was saying, if there's one thing that should rule your life as, as my chosen people, There's one thing that should rule your life as my chosen people should be my promises. Let those be the foundation of what gives you hope. Let that be be what sustains you. See a lot of evidences. Number one, the first evidence we see that Abraham was sustained by the promises of God is that he went. He went. You can turn back to Genesis chapter 12. We'll just read the first couple verses here. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those, or dishonor, and, and to him who dishonors you I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Something that Paul tells us in Galatians is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the seed through whom we are blessed spiritually. Now, this may not become as a great surprise to you, but Genesis chapter 12 comes right after Genesis chapter 11. And if you remember what Pastor Kyle was telling us about Genesis chapter 11 was the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel, God scatters everybody because of the sin of wanting to build a name for themselves and build this big tower, reaches to the heavens. But their sin goes with them. Now the very next thing that happens after the Tower of Babel, after God scatters everybody, is God chooses a man and begins to immediately unfold his plan to bring those who are scattered back in. That's the grace of God. He did it in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned. And immediately after cursing mankind and cursing creation, God immediately, right off the bat, promises 
that there is going to come someone who's going to crush the head of that serpent, and then God provides for them clothing, something they could not provide on their own. Because God is in the business, and God has made it his purpose to bring the God-man, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins. And the chosen man is Abraham, the father of the Jewish, Jewish nation. And we, read, we just read that covenant that God made with Abraham. And God told him to go, and he went. He went without delay, he went without discussion, and he went without distraction. This is something I try to get, we try to get our kids to do, right? When we tell them to do something, don't delay, no discussion, and no distraction. Like Distractions are huge, aren't they? Go clean your room. But then they end up playing with all the things that they don't, ever play with, but they, you know, now it's all fun, you know, because they're picking up their room, or go clean your room, but, you know, they got to go to the bathroom. You know, it's time to go to bed. For some reason, bedtime guarantees that your child is suffering from dehydration, uh, and they need water, and they need a lot of water, and they have to go to the bathroom four times, and then the one time they want to brush their teeth is when it's time for bed. He went, sustained by the promises of God. He waited. Remember, when he entered the land of Canaan, God told him that this is where, this is the land that he was going to get, him and his descendants. Think about that. Abraham built an altar there to memorialize the promise of God, but Abraham didn't complain. Say, man, Lord, I have to wait a long time for that. He didn't demand immediate fulfillment, like, God, hey, I'd rather not spend the latter years of my life wandering around. Why don't you just fulfill this right now? And he didn't return to where he had been before. He had to wait for God to fulfill that promise, but he didn't say, well, I'll just go back to my hometown and wait. He worshiped. He built an altar in Canaan to memorialize the promises of God, and later in Genesis chapter 22, he would build another altar to prove that he was sustained by the promises of God. You know, it's good to have God's promises hanging in our house, maybe some home decor. My wife has verses in a couple different places, maybe hanging them on the fridge or whatever it might be. It's, it's good to memorialize the promises of God. The question is, what happens when God asks us to prove that we're being sustained by the promises of God? Moses Abraham, Abraham was already, had already set his heart to worship. As a matter of fact, when he left his servants, he said, we're going to go up to this mountain and worship. On his way up the mountain, the intention of sacrificing his son to obey the command of God, his heart was already set to worship. Because a worshiping faith, a faith that is sustained by the promises of God, is a faith that will obey God regardless of the circumstances. Will trust in the I wills of God. And for Abraham, his wife, both him and his wife were well beyond childbearing years. God finally miraculously provides this child. And we read in Hebrews that Abraham was like, God could raise this kid from the dead. If he wants me to kill my kid, I'll kill my kid. But God could raise him from the dead. Because God has given me his promises and I'm going to do what God wants me to do. The promises of God are mentioned throughout Abraham's life. In almost every part of Abraham's 
narrative that we read through Genesis in chapters 12 through 22-ish, 23, time and time again it's repeated. But there's something I noticed as I read through Abraham's account. There are three times when God's promises are not repeated in Abraham's life. When he lies to Pharaoh, when he lies to the king of Bimelech, and when he sleeps with Sarah's handmaid, Hagar, to try to take matters into their own hands and fulfill God's promises apart from him. Those are about the only times, this includes Sodom and Gomorrah, when he splits up with Lot, when he, God is constantly reminding him of his promises, but they're not mentioned in those moments. I don't want to read too much into that, but I think it's kind of significant. I think it's a good principle for us. The lies were self-preservation. The night and the the sun through Sarah's handmaid was self-assertion. And I think self-preservation and self-assertion are the natural byproducts of a wavering faith. That isn't sustained by the promises of God. But even so, with all of that, the promises of God sustained Abraham. Abraham knew there was no way God could fail him. There's no way God will fail you with whatever promises he's given. Now, not the promises you and I like to make up that God has given to us, but the promises that God actually gives to us. He will fulfill them. There's no way God will fail. We referenced uh, Numbers 23 this morning in Sunday school or in the Adult Bible Fellowship. God is not one that he is going to lie or going to change his mind. He's going to be like, eh, the whole heaven thing that I promised him, I'm thinking I might back out on that. He's not going to do it. So, what's the big deal about the promises of God? What's the big deal? Do they have any significance beyond home decor and cute coffee mugs? What, what, what's the big deal about these promises of God? 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4 gives us an answer. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4 says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Listen to this. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Why? So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The question is, do you want eternal life? You don't have it without the promise of God. Do you want to escape the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire? Do you want to escape the wrath to come that is set upon you because of your sinful desire? You must believe and trust in the promise of God that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Without the promise of God, without the promises of God, we don't have eternal life. Without the promises of God, we don't, there's no way for us to grow in holiness, in, in Christ's likeness. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, which leads us to the next eternal truth. God's promises can sustain you. God's grace can save you. There are four outcasts, and I've already referred, there are four women actually, but there are four women who are outcasts included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. They're chapter, uh, verse 3, back in chapter, Matthew chapter 1 and verses 5 and 6. Now, this is one of the amazing things about this genealogy. I know you never thought you would hear that there's something amazing about a genealogy, but I'm about to give it to you right now. The amazing thing about this genealogy is that there are women included. That would be the most unusual thing in that day to include a woman in the genealogy because the family name came from the father and the family inheritance came through the father. 
So for Matthew to include these women, four women, five if you include Mary, um, is unusual. So why did Matthew include them? I think it's to get us to think about who this Jesus is. He would be one who would be rightly accused of hanging out with prostitutes and sinners and Gentiles and pagans. He would be one who would be rightly accused of associating with the lowly. And Matthew pulls no punches. He says he comes from a, from a family of lowly people. Jesus came from a family of sinners, outcasts, and more sinners. Let's look at the four. Tamar. Remember the story of Tamar? We don't have time to rehearse everything, but Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah. She had been widowed by Judah's sons. She was married to one. He died, so she married another, and then he died. And so Judah promised her his third son. But Judah probably didn't have really any intention of having that third son marry her. So remember, she took things into her own, own hands. She wanted the security. She wanted the safety. She wanted the family. And so she dresses up like a prostitute. And she goes and hangs out at a place where she knew Judah would walk by. And Judah, um, himself a widower, his wife had, had uh, died uh, earlier before this. Uh, Judah propositions her, but he didn't know his daughter-in-law Judah she gets pregnant, and Judah is ready to burn her because of her immorality. Do you remember that? When they found out that Tamar is pregnant, and he says, bring her here. We're going we're gonna to burn her and condemn her because of everything she did. And what does she do? She pulls out three items that belong to Judah, and she says, the father is whoever owns these three items. Remember what Judah says? You're more righteous than I am. Now Judah, at a time when he should be seeking the welfare and security of his daughter-in-law, was seeking an immoral and casual sexual encounter. Tamar, who was concerned about securing her livelihood and her future at all costs, committed a gross immoral sin. Now from these two, from a self-satisfying man and a self-securing woman, the lion of the tribe of Judah would come. That was the prophecy given to Judah. From you, the lion. He'd hold a scepter. He would rule. Jesus I think what we learned from them too is Jesus is the only one that could truly satisfy. And he's the only one that could truly bring security. We move on to Rahab. So we keep moving through these. Tamar, now Tamar pretended to be a prostitute. Now Rahab was an actual prostitute. That was how she made her living. And as a matter of fact, that is, that is who she is by name. If you go to Hebrews, you don't have to turn there, but Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, it says, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given the friendly welcome to the spies. And then in James chapter 2, verse 25, it says, And in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. 
Now, if there's anyone we would want to hide from our family tree, it's probably her. It's probably the one that just made such a train wreck of her life. It made such sinful, immoral choices. We don't want anything to do with her. Yet we learn that God can save anyone and God could use them for his purposes. What's the one person you're thinking of right now in your family? You're saying there's no hope for that person. No hope for my sibling, no hope for that cousin, no hope for uncle, whoever. There's just no hope. Be careful you put someone else's sins beyond the cross, like the song the choir sang for us this morning. Rahab's life was changed because she saw the power of God and she submitted to him as Lord of her life and she experienced God's grace. Ruth. Read about Ruth in this as well. Uh, down in verse 5. Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite, an idolatrous nation forbidden even from being part of the assembly of Israel. If you were here for my candidate on Sunday, this is all fresh in your mind. You guys remember everything I said, so I don't need to rehearse too much of it. Uh, her two sons passed away, remember? Elimelech and Naomi, all of them moved there, and the two boys die. And Ruth and Orpah, uh, the two widows of Naomi's two sons, are now left with the opportunity to build a life of security in their home of Moab. Orpah chooses to do that, but Ruth chooses to go with Naomi back to Israel. She faithfully works in the fields. We didn't get to this in the message, but uh, chapters 2 and 3 especially, she works in the fields to provide for her and Naomi. She had an unexpected encounter with a relative in whose field she was, she was gleaning. It was Boaz. But Ruth had no idea that she would eventually find herself in the family tree of the Messiah. That she would find herself in the very lineage of the eternal and all-powerful God. But that's what happened. Ruth was the great-grandmother, if I got that right, the great-grandmother of Israel's greatest king. Man, what God can do with people who just faithfully do what God has called them to do. Bathsheba. Bathsheba. She caught the eye of King David. You know the story. She was found to be with child after David forced her to sleep with him. I don't know if it was much of a forcing. I think... It was an invite. She gets pregnant. Overall, we don't know much about Bathsheba. She's not even mentioned by name. We don't know much about her, but she was a woman who faced a lot of traumatic experiences in her life. Right, her husband dies in battle, and she probably didn't know that it was David committing murder through the enemy soldiers. Her baby dies within the first few days of his life. Her whole life gets flipped, gets flipped upside down because of the selfish acts of a man who abused his power. Because of her own act of adultery, her whole life was broken and in shambles. Our lives don't always go as God's plan, but he is in control of all things, even the evil things. It's interesting, 
in the New Testament when Jesus shows up on the scene. It's the faith of the outcasts that often draw his attention more even than the faith of his disciples. It was those outside of Israel that Jesus would say, I have not found so great a faith in all of Israel. It's the people we often think of the least deserving and least impressive and the most unlikely. Those are the ones whom God raises up. By the way, if if God has saved you, God has saved you, you ought to consider yourself as one of the least impressive and most unlikely people God can save. This holiday season, as you get with fam- if you get with family, whatever happens, if you're around people, around neighbors, I'm going to say that people don't need lectures on putting Christ back in Christmas. They don't need you to be a Scrooge. They don't need me to be a Scrooge. We all need God's grace. And I would ask you this, are you willing to identify with your sinful family members, your sinful neighbor, your neighbors, sinful neighbors? Jesus came from sinners, and he dwelt among sinners, though he himself was sinless. Listen, you come, I come from sinners. I am, I'm probably the one in the family nobody wants to talk about. Uh, At least there was probably a time in my life where, like, nobody wanted to talk about. In in grade school, I was getting in fights all the time. I would fight anybody. didn't matter their size, how many people there were. I just wanted to fight somebody. They pulled me out of... Uh, they pulled me out of uh, public school and put me in Christian school because that was the answer. <laughs> Not. <laughs> uh, my dad was best friends with our principal for all the wrong reasons. Uh, man, we're sinners. We've got outcasts, so to speak, in our lives. Our question is, would you be willing to give them hope This Christmas season, God's grace can save you. His promises can sustain you. God's grace can save you. The third thing we rule, we we read, we learn about God, uh, this great eternal truth about God, number three, is his rule can secure you. In verses 6 through 11, we have a lot of the kings pop up. His rule can secure you. Now, again, we're only going to look at David, even though there's a whole There's a whole Old Testament going on here. But God promised that Abraham would be the father of many nations. And that from him would come a ruler. Well, David is partial fulfillment of these promises. That a ruler would come from Abraham. Now life, uh, notice, David is the only one referred to in verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David the king. He's the only one referred to as the king. It's probably because he's the most revered and most honored of all the kings of Israel. Hezekiah was probably the second greatest. But life under King David was prosperous. It was blessed. It was great. He was appointed and chosen by God to be the one to 
kind of set everything straight with Israel. Remember, they gave God, they wanted the king, so God gave him Saul for a little bit. That did not turn out so great. God rejects Saul, chooses, king, uh, chooses David to be king. And God promises that David, that his throne would endure for all eternity. It was through David that the kingdom of God was going to be fully realized. Yet God reminds us, as we've already mentioned, of David's disgrace. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Our sins, the things, what is it that taints your life? Do you have anything? Is there something you just, it taints your soul, it taints your life? You feel like that many times it's just the badge you wear when you're around those who know whatever it is. The things that taint our lives, it should remind us of our own ugliness. It should remind us of our own sinfulness. But then, it should turn us to Christ and remind us of his grace that Jesus came to save those who are broken and tainted and scarred and stained with sin. That though our sins be as scarlet, yet they will be white as snow through Jesus Christ. His blood can make the foulest clean. It should help us always have those words implanted on our heart, for nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. Uh, just the other day, we were talking um, with... Uh, with some people in our cell group, and we're talking about the rapture and heaven and the end times and stuff. And, and someone in our group had, had said, I'm not ready for the rapture because I have, I have so many people who are unsaved, so many family that's unsaved. And they're talking about when we get to heaven, are we going to realize they're not there? I mean, they said, there's not supposed to be any crying in heaven, but aren't we going to have... Aren't we going to know that there's, there's someone not there? And here's one of the ways I responded. I said, when we get to heaven, I don't think we're going to ask why someone else isn't there. I think we're going to ask, why am I here? How did I get here? What did I do to deserve this? And we're already going to know the answer. As a matter of fact, the only way to know the answer is to be saved, or the only way to be saved is to know the answer to that question. What did I do to deserve this? Nothing. I don't. God rules with grace. He rules with truth. He rules with righteousness. And he saves those who call on the name of the Lord. David often wrote in the Psalms of God as a shelter, a fortress, and a shield. In those times in which God ruled his heart, were the times where he was the most secure, even though there was sorrow? Were the times where he was safest, where he had a shield around him? The safest place to be is in God's will. Death and chaos came from David's sin. Hope and rest and peace came in times of obedience. I didn't mean David didn't have any struggles, sufferings, trials, anything like that. But he had peace. One day Jesus will come and rule the world. We have to ask the question, is he ruling my heart now? Is he ruling my heart now? There would come from David's line a king, 
and he would conquer more than just nations. He would conquer sin and death and hell itself. He would put the enemies of the cross, he would put Satan and his demons to open shame by nailing our sins to the cross. That's what Colossians chapter 2 says. When he died on the cross, he put all of them to open shame. Verses 7 through 11, we won't take time to read all the names, but it's basically the rise and fall. The rise and fall of the Davidic kingdom. This great flourishing tree that was David's kingdom, by the end of this, if you notice, we, the, the verse 11, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. By the time this happens, this great tree that was David's reign is now a stump. But from that stump, a shoot will appear. From what is dead, what seems to be dead, something was going to sprout up from that deadness. And it sprouted up the day Jesus was born. His rule can secure you. God's promises can sustain you. God's grace can save you. God's rule can secure you. And lastly this morning, God's faithfulness can settle you. In verses 12 through 16, you have all the exiles. And as a matter of fact, many of these names are insignificant in Scripture or unmentioned. As a matter of fact, the further down the list of these names that you go, the more obscure they are. We don't know a whole lot about most of these names. We arrive at Joseph at the end of all these names, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, the Messiah, the King. We arrive at Joseph, all these men listed were in the kingly line of David. All of them would have been kings had the Lord not taken away the throne from David for a time. But if you've, if you've, got, if you've got your Bible open to Matthew chapter 1, you might have just a big white page in between the Old and New Testament. Or maybe a page that just says the New Testament. The whole Old Testament, all Old Testament was preparing the world for the arrival of the Son of God in the Incarnation. 400 years between the last page of your Old Testament and the first page of your New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. And they are not insignificant years. We're not going to go over everything that happened. But we talked about it a little bit in Sunday school this morning. Those weren't insignificant years. God was preparing the world, the plurema, the fullness of time. He was preparing the world for the coming of the Savior. During that time, there arose a man who Hellenized the ancient world, the Hellenization. There was a man who wanted everybody to have the same language, the same philosophy, the same ideas, the same culture, the same everything. His name was Alexander the Great. 24 years old, by the way. I don't know why I said it like that, uh, but I guess I'm 32. I'm like, man, I haven't conquered anything. Uh, He wanted everyone to have the same language, same everything. That's why the New Testament is written in Greek and not in Hebrew, even though the writers were mostly Jewish. I think they're all Jewish, maybe the New Testament. Someone smarter than me can correct me after the service. Written in Greek and not in Hebrew. But think about this. At the time of Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the Jewish people were groaning 
under Roman rule. They had only just recently won their freedom against the man whose name was Antiochus Epiphanes. They call him Antiochus, the manifestation of God. That's what Epiphanes means, epiphany, a manifestation. In 164 BC, just about 160 years or so before Christ was born, they had freed themselves from the grip of Antiochus Epiphanes. By the way, they still celebrate that to this very day. Does anybody know what the holiday's called? Hanukkah. Jesus came from a stump. When everything is dead and lowly, everything's been kind of cut down. The people are cut down spiritually, emotionally, and they're ready. They're ready for this Messiah to get rid of these Romans. This Jesus, the reason for the season, the one who was born in such mean a state, is amazing because this stump... He came from that which is lowly. He was the adopted son of a poor carpenter. He was the son of a lowly virgin. The creator and sustainer of everything down to the smallest molecule took on your form and mine, and he came to this world. He came and he looked like one of us. He suffered like one of us. He cried like one of us. He hungered like one of us, although he was sinless, unlike any of us. He was meek and lowly even though he was sinless and holy. God was faithful to his promise. He's here. And next week we're going to look at the response to the king being born. But God was faithful to his promise. Jesus is here. And let me just encourage you. Jesus will be here soon. These verses show us that God always keeps his word. He promises to save everyone who is in Christ, and he will surely do it. These verses show us that God faithfully shows new mercies every single morning. These verses show us that great is God's faithfulness. What a wonderful God we serve. Mighty and gracious. What a hope we have. No matter what you're facing today, no matter what your family looks like, no matter what baggage or whatever might be tainting or staining your life, Come to Christ. His promises can sustain you. His grace can save you. His rule can secure you. And his faithfulness can settle you. Let's pray. Our great God, we we stand in awe of your mercy towards us. We are sinful and broken. Our attitudes are so far from how you would have them oft times. Lord, we don't want to just look at ourselves and just see all the ugliness. We want to look at ourselves and see the ugliness and just see the beauty of Christ. But Lord, maybe there's some in here right now, maybe even listening online, where all they can see is ugliness because the ugliness is all they have. There's no beauty. There's no glory of the gospel. The beauty of Christ has not captured their heart. They are not satisfied in Jesus. They have not trusted him to be their Savior, the crucified and risen Lord. Lord, take away their ugliness, forgive them. May today be the day of salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.